0: Welcome back. This is Your Call. I'm Matt Martin, sitting in for Rose Aguilar, who will be back in the host chair on Monday. In 1967, Noam Chomsky became one of the leading opponents of the Vietnam War with the publication of his essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Since then, Professor Chomsky has been one of the most vocal and articulate critics of U.S. policies at home and abroad. And he's also analyzed the economic underpinnings of international relations and the role mass media plays in controlling public opinion. Noam Chomsky is a professor emeritus of linguistics at MIT and the author of dozens of books on politics and language, including the forthcoming Hopes and Prospects from Haymarket Press. He's going to be in the Bay Area for events on Saturday night at the Paramount Theater in Oakland and Tuesday evening at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. I'm going to give more details on those events later in the program, but if you want to find out right now, you can go to our website, yourcallradio.com. and all the information about both events is there. Um, Noam Chomsky joins us on the line from Boston. Professor Chomsky, really great to have you with us. Yeah, glad to be with you. Yeah, it's great. Uh, And I, I know that a lot of our listeners are going to want to join this conversation in this hour, so I want to invite them right away. Um, We're going to be talking about hotspots of the moment from Honduras to Afghanistan, Venezuela, Iran. Uh, But we'll also be talking about the larger picture of U.S. foreign policy and shifts happening internationally uh, that could change the way the U.S. can act in the world. And uh, also a bit of conversation about what we can do as citizens of the world, citizens of the United States, uh, how we can be something other than spectators when it comes to these issues. So if you want to let us know what you think, take advantage of this opportunity to have a dialogue with Noam Chomsky, you can email us at feedback. At yourcallradio.org. That's feedback at yourcallradio.org or by calling 866 798 8255. That's 866 798 TALK. Uh, Noam Chomsky, thanks once again for joining us. And I I just want to leap right in. I know in your this forthcoming book, Hopes and Prospects, your focus is on the political changes taking place in the Americas, North and South. Mm -hmm. And you have been writing and paying close attention to the situation in Honduras. Talk a little bit about the coup there, the ongoing constitutional crisis, and where that fits into your analysis of the changes taking place in the Americas, including the u s role there
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, this is the,
2: <clears throat> the third military coup in uh, the new cent- the new millennium. Uh, the first was in Venezuela in two thousand and two uh, That one uh, briefly overthrew the government. Uh, Uh, essentially installed a military dictatorship. Uh, It was quickly overturned, but uh, by a popular uprising and by strong opposition in Latin America, the uh, United States openly supported that one, which is in fact the norm in the past. The United States either supports the coups or carries them out almost, without exception. Uh, So that fit the norm. Uh, After the coup was uh, reversed, uh, the United States turned to the second option, uh, namely subversion, uh, which is called democracy promotion. Uh, that means uh, intervening through um, what's called aid or national, the sort of democracy promotion institutions, as they're called, in ways to support the opposition to undermine the government to sow dissension and so on and so forth. We, we don't know the details because they've kept it secret, but uh, a fair amount of money has been poured into essentially subversion to try to undermine the government once the coup failed. And what was the second coup? The second coup was in Haiti. Uh, that was just carried out by the United States and France, the two traditional torturers of Haiti, uh, mm-hmm. invaded it after having basically strangled the country in many different ways, uh, invaded, uh, essentially kidnapped the president, sent him off to Central Africa. The U.S. has been trying to keep him out of the hemisphere. Uh, so that was fit the normal pattern. The third coup is Honduras, and that breaks the normal pattern. Uh, the United States was not, as far as we know, directly involved. Uh, it uh, The coup was very sharply condemned by the organization of american states uh, by europe um, just about everywhere uh the united states joined the criticism of the coup but rather tepidly uh it's kind of dragged its feet on this and as uh, you can see it when osalia uh, came back a couple of days ago the strongest comments of the united states from the united states including its oas ambassador were to condemn him for uh, disrupting things by returning uh, the united states has partially withdrawn military aid uh it's maintained other forms of aid it's put some it's there've been some censure of the uh, and penalties on coup leaders withdrawing some visas and so on uh, however it's maintained its ambassador the latin american countries and european countries withdrew their ambassadors so
0: but given, given the the pattern that you've clearly shown about US, the us's role in central and latin america I mean this. This would this would count as progress, right? In terms of the it's response part, here. Yeah, it's it, you can
2: interpret it two ways: either as progress or as a recognition of relative weakness.
0: Mm, yeah, talk uh, about that.
2: Well, the, the the U.S. has quite openly sought to maintain power control over Latin America. I mean, traces back to the Monroe Doctrine, but it was put rather well by the National Security Council and during the Nixon administration when they were planning to overthrow the government of Chile, uh, they said, if we, if we can't control Latin America, how are we going to control the rest of the world? You know, mm-hmm. this is our backyard. So you've got to control Latin America. The two traditional techniques of control have been violence, like military coups, uh, and uh, economic strangulation. And both of those weapons have been weakened in recent years. Uh, especially in South America. Uh South America was has been moving towards uh first of all rejection of the very destructive neoliberal policies, so-called Washington consensus. It's been moving towards integration for the first time since the European conquests, and integration is a prerequisite for uh, uh independence. Uh it's been moving to uh, for the first time to address some of its Horrendous internal problems society's very sharply split between a small wealthy europeanized often mostly white elite and uh massive deeply impoverished people uh it's uh, both of those forms of integration have been moving forward it's uh the u s has been thrown out of its military bases. the last one in monta Ecuador, a couple of weeks ago was finally terminated uh It's uh, um, also uh, many of the countries have paid off, either restructured or paid off their debts. So they've Mm -hmm. essentially thrown out the IMF, which is basically a branch of the U.S. Treasury Department and has
0: been uh, a method of kind of economic control. So, Professor uh, Chaps, I do want to ask. So, I mean, kind of certainly at the forefront of that rollback, the resistance to the U.S. role, the Washington consensus in Latin America has been Hugo Chavez in no, Venezuela is so before, before Chavez. As before Chavez. As,
2: in fact, it's all over the continent. I mean, Chavez has, has indeed played a, a primary role in it, but mm-hmm. uh, it's true of Brazil, it's true of Argentina. You know, Bolivia is in many ways the most striking example mm. uh, because there there's actually a mass popular movement based on the most repressed population of the hemisphere, the indigenous population, uh, which uh, back in... 2000 already had a, an amazing victory they threw out the world bank and the bechtel corporation who were trying to privatize water meaning most people can't pay for water uh they got rid of them they've been carrying out constant struggles they entered the political arena in 2005 and elected someone from their own ranks i mean that's something unheard of you know not some rich guy but uh uh, they elected a poor peasant president on real issues, which the population was concerned with: uh, control of resources, uh, ethnic, uh, complicated, multicultural issues that they face, and so on. Professor Chalmski, ongoing. Program And, of course, the U.S. has been trying to undermine
0: it. Well, but, uh, I, I want to get to that U.S. undermining. I do want to let listeners know we're, we're talking to Noam Chomsky on today's Your Call, uh, and we are taking Your Calls at 866-798-8255. And you can also email us at feedback at org. Uh, I, I do want to hear more about Bolivia and also about the role of the U.S. there, but I just want to ask because this summer you went to Venezuela and, and you met with, with President Hugo Chavez and i'm I'm just interested as someone who's read your work over the years and knows you're somebody who says at the philosophical level you're you're an anarchist, and then you know and someone who's really criticized the way the state and military power have been used by all kinds of regimes um when you go meet with Hugo Chavez you know here's somebody from a you know from a military background, obviously the leader of a state what you know what's that like when the two of you sit down and, and what do you see as the common ground between you
2: Well actually uh... Visited is a little bit of an exaggeration. Okay, well, do, about 24 hours. Mm. But uh, uh uh we talked about actually it was a pretty open and frank conversation, I had the same kinds of conversations I would try to have and sometimes have with other political leaders. Uh uh he, he, it was it, it he it was uh, about uh, I mean he's it was frank, open. You know, informative. I mean, I learned some things about what he's doing. He asked questions about what I thought about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, uh, There's some common ground. I, um, some disagreements. Uh, uh, I, I should say that I don't want to draw many conclusions from a couple of hours of talking. But among the occasions I've had to talk to political leaders, there are numerous. This was one of the most uh, uh, open and engaging. It seemed like a. Uh, not uh, pretty, no very little no posturing no
0: Did you talk posturing. to him about Iran? No, we didn't talk about Iran. I was just curious because you know you, you're someone who signed on to a an open letter, you know, saying there should be an international investigation of the elections there, mm-hmm. saying that nations and international organizations should curtail their relations with Iran until that happens, uh, and of course. Uh, You know, Hugo Chavez didn't say that they should curtail
2: the relations. That's a
0: separate question.
2: But yes, it said that uh, there should be a reaction to the uh, repression and the
0: highly implausible. Well, it it said refuse to recognize Ahmadinejad's illegitimate government. That was that was part of that open letter. uh
2: Yeah. It was an open letter, but if you look closely, you'll notice that I signed it with a reservation, saying I didn't agree with that paragraph. Oh
0: well, that reservation was not in what I found, so I yeah, I, I, t- okay. I take that I take that. Uh,
2: yeah. So, I mean that res- I mean, I could tell you the whole details if you like about the way it was formed and so on. But well,
0: maybe you could do that briefly, and then we're going to go to a break and take calls. Yeah.
2: Well, the uh, original statement didn't include that, and I signed it, and then later that statement was introduced, and I. I said I didn't agree with that statement and had to decide whether to just pull out or make a compromise, and I decided to make a compromise, but with a reservation. I I don't think that's the the right step. It's Mm. better to keep engagement. Incidentally, uh, Chavez is known for his, in my opinion, quite wrong uh, support for uh, the current government. Less known, and in fact, as far as I know, unreported, is the fact that uh, Washington's fair-haired boy in Latin America, namely Lula, has taken an even stronger pro-Iranian stance, said that he strongly supports Iran's right to enrich uranium, um, doesn't, won't talk about the elections just as he doesn't expect uh, Iran to talk about Brazilian elections and so on.
0: No, well, I'm, finally, I'm glad so. you're bringing it up on our air. That's something I was not aware of as well. So I'm sure that it wasn't reported. There you have it. Well, you are listening to your call. I'm Matt Martin talking uh, to Noam Chomsky, who's a noted linguist, leading critic of U.S. foreign policy, emeritus professor of linguistics at MIT. Professor Chomsky is going to be in the barrier for two events uh, this weekend on Saturday night at seven thirty he'll be speaking at the middle east children's Alliance benefit for the children of Gaza at the Paramount Theater in downtown Oakland. And on Tuesday evening, he's going to be at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco to talk about the about philosophies of language and politics. We've got full information on both events at our website. And I invite you to call up and join this conversation with Noam Chomsky at 866-798-8255 or by emailing feedback at yourcallradio.org. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to your
2: call here on 91.7 KALW San Francisco, your local public radio station, listener-supported community broadcast service online at KALW.org. Coming up at 12 noon, it's Bina followed at 1 by open air and dispatches from the BBC at 2 o'clock.
0: You are listening to your call. I'm Matt Martin sitting in for Rose Aguilar, who'll be back on Monday, uh, we, our upcoming programs, uh, tomorrow it's going to be our Friday Media Roundtable. Sandeep Roy will be hosting. And on Monday, we'll continue our Agenda for a New Economy series with a conversation with Laura Weber, author of In Cheap We Trust, the Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. Uh, on Tuesday, we'll be looking at the upcoming session of the Supreme Court. And on Wednesday, in our latest series on the Commons, uh, we're asking whether after three years of drought, is it the day of reckoning for California's water system, and if so, uh, what Role can we play in uh, in changing things? Uh, we are taking your calls and emails for Noam Chomsky. Uh, he is in town for two events in the Bay Area. You can find the details uh, at yourcallradio.org. We're talking about uh, the direction American foreign policy is taking, as well as uh, the popular movements around the world uh, that are changing the international landscape. Uh, and uh, we also, if you've got questions for Noam Chomsky about his analysis of the international scene, uh, where U.S. foreign policy is headed, we invite you to call at eight. 8- Six six seven nine eight eight two five five, or to email at feedback at dot org. Professor Chomsky, is okay with you? I think we'll go straight to a couple of callers. Sure. Uh, first, Grant in Santa Cruz. Welcome to your call.
3: Oh, uh, thank you, and uh, thank you for your series, your call. I think it's really a, a wonderful series, and I also just want to thank Mr. Chomsky for his many, many years of persistence and perseverance in really speaking his understanding of things, despite it not always being a popular, um, uh, insight. (laughs) And, um, my question actually is around, I guess, quote unquote public media in America. And I guess it's, uh, um, I think often it's, it's lack of self ability to be self critical, whether it's, you know, NPR or other forms of, of, quote unquote public media. Um, it seems as though when you hear the, the, the institutions that back, uh, NPR, the corporate sponsors, that that makes it much more difficult for NPR to do critical journalism. And I just wanted to point out what, what your thoughts are on that. Thank you.
2: Uh, well, there's, uh, I guess, am, am I on? I c- You're on. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, I couldn't hear for a second. Uh, in the interests of full disclosure, I should say, I suppose, that uh, I suppose I'm at the top of uh, NPR's enemies list. At least I'm the only person, as far as I know, who's been identified in print as the one person they'll never permit on their uh, prime-time program. All things considered, uh, but I listen to it, and I think it has some good material, and uh, it's useful. I'm glad it's there. Uh, it's uh, it it doesn't stray from a pretty narrow consensus. Uh, the 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 media, I would. Putting them sort of on an international spectrum, I'd call them ranging from the center, like NPR, to the extreme right, like say Fox News and talk radio, which are kind of kind of off the spectrum. Uh, and they're in in there. The ma- major media, you know, NPR, CBS, ABC, CNN, are pretty much centrist media. They do not seriously question. Uh, 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 the stands of power centers. They can uh, have, say, critique of state power or of corporate power, but it's very narrow. Uh, A good example is what's regarded as criticism of the Iraq war. So President Obama, for example, is regarded as a principled critic of the Iraq war uh, because he described it as a strategic blunder and you can hear commentators on NPR. You can read them in the New York Times, uh, who and so on, who will say, "Yes, it was a strategic blunder," and that proves that the media are critical. Well, you know that's a very funny standard. I mean, if uh, you go back to say uh, Russia in the 1980s, uh, you found people writing in Pravda. Who said that invading Afghanistan was a strategic blunder? They should have never done it. It was stupid. They should pull the troops out. But we didn't call that a principled critique of the war. I mean, a principled critique doesn't say, look, it's a blunder. We're making a mistake. Uh, we shouldn't do it. It's costing us too much. A principled critique is to say it's a crime. It's, in fact, the major crime, the, the world's major crime, the supreme international crime, it was called at Nuremberg. And that's impossible uh next to impossible uh and the same uh, and there is the same is true on the domestic front uh you can uh, ac- uh criticize uh say you know the financial institutions for uh greed uh, corruption uh, uh you know the robbing the taxpayer uh, all sorts of things uh but not as saying that their that their basic existence uh is uh Fundamentally illegitimate. These are tyrannical institutions. They're barely accountable to the public. They're uh, uh, they're granted extraordinary rights by by the state. All corporations are, and uh, none of that's legitimate at the core. So of course the the things they do, you can't you know you can't criticize them for greed.
0: They're legally required to be greedy. That's a part of the legal structure and the institutional structure. Noam Chomsky, you mentioned, obviously, talking about the Soviets and their role in Afghanistan. But I I have a question, just because this week we're hearing a lot of discussion about the potential for some kind of split within the Obama administration about what goes forward in Afghanistan. I understand neither of those folks are making what you consider a principled argument about the U.S. role there. Um, But I'm curious, because you're someone who's always drawn attention to when there are fissures among the elite about some of these things, is there something real happening here, and why do you think it's happening?
2: Oh, there, it's happening because there are tactical questions to raise. Uh, there were similar, it was there were similar discussions in Russia in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, should they uh, uh, withdraw? You know, limit, reduce the uh, engagement, uh, pull out all or should they increase it? Should there be a surge? And try to expand their control. Uh, those were tactical arguments about what's best for the interests of Russian power, and there are tactical debates now in the United States about what's best in the interest of u s power. Uh, you can take one or another position on those debates if you like so but if you
0: if, if you're somebody you me whoever's listening, who's standing outside of those tactical debates we you know we're not we, we're not going to be in those rooms making those decisions, but we may care about. Is there a way we take advantage of this moment? Or how do we we get involved in the discussion in a way that we hope might listen to somebody who can actually take trips out or put them in? I think we should approach it pretty much the
2: way that we did approach uh, the debates in the Kremlin. Uh, We should say you're asking the wrong question. Uh, The question is, the point is, it's not your right to make a decision. It's up to the Afghan people to decide. And the same is true here. Uh, the question is not what's the best tactic for us, and, or uh, the question is why we have a right to make that decision in the first place. Uh, we don't. Uh, invading armies don't have, a, don't have those rights. Uh, uh, we, we can take positions which will grant the Afghan people uh, the power to make decisions for themselves. Now, that's, you can't do that in a single step, but that's what policy should be directed to, and that's what tactics should be directed to. And if those policies, um, for example, if the policies happen to be what uh, uh, Hamid Karzai, the president, called for, maybe they will, maybe they won't, uh, but if they happen to be those, if those are the decisions, well, we have to honor them. So, for example, when Obama came in, to power his first communication from president of afghanistan was first stop the bombing of afghan civilians the drone attacks and everything else and secondly he called for a uh, timetable for withdrawal of foreign troops well okay if that turns out to be what the population in internal deliberation decides on yes then we have no further decisions to make that's what we do uh but uh uh, uh, you know, and it's not a simple matter of sort of saying, let's have a vote uh, too much. I was going to say it's difficult to do. It's difficult. But the, the point is, the question is, what aim are we pursuing? And what steps can we take toward that aim? Now, the aim that both of the factions you're talking about are is pursuing is how to ensure uh U.S. domination of the region. Okay. We know that. I mean, the Obama administration, for example, is now uh, building a uh, mega-embassy in Kabul modeled on the city within a city in uh, Baghdad, which is also being extended by the Obama administration, and another one in uh, Islamabad. Uh, Those are clear statements of intention to uh maintain a position of dominance in Iraq, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan and the whole region pursuing long-term american goals goes way back uh, back to the second world war uh but uh, with tactical modifications well uh is what we ought to be asking is what right do we have to do that in the first place
0: Noam Chomsky, I want to bring in another question that that a listener emailed in related to Honduras. His name is Pablo. He says he's in Ecuador and living in Oakland. He says, Mr. Chomsky, what can people around the world, countries and international institutions like the UN do to help Honduras return to democracy? I ask this question because I agree with Obama's opinion when he said there's a contradiction between wanting the USA not to intervene in internal policies of countries around the world and then wanting the US to do something to help Honduras return to its democracy. Yeah, I don't think the term intervention is correct.
2: When we provide military aid to Honduras and when we train the military, the officer corps of Honduras, we're intervening. Uh, If we withdraw that, that's not intervention. That's non-intervention. So the question is, Obama's statement is incorrect. There's no contradiction. The question is, should we stop the intervention? which is sustaining the system, uh, and there is such intervention. For example, training training the officer corps, maintaining contacts with them, providing military aid. Technically it's been reduced, but that's not at all clear. Uh, our involvement with even if we were to terminate uh, the, uh, the selectively economic aid in such a way as to harm the coup leaders, that would not be intervention that would be withdrawal of intervention so we didn't say that the russians were intervening in afghanistan when they pulled their troops out no, that's not intervention that's withdrawal of intervention so obama state i don't agree with the writer there i think obama's statement was complete seriously misleading and incorrect uh... uh the uh, the question is whether we should join the rest of the world in strongly uh... in uh, uh, withdrawing our support for an illegitimate coup government. For example, withdrawing our ambassador the way Europe and Latin American countries did, uh, that's not intervention. That's uh, saying we're not going to support this. uh, We're not going to intervene by supporting the illegitimate government.
0: Well, I want to intervene on behalf of our listeners because I know a lot of folks are calling up and emailing. I want to keep them in the conversation. Uh, The number to call to talk to Noam Chomsky here on your call is 866 8255. That's eight six six seven nine eight eight two five five. or you can email at feedback at yourcallradio.org. Uh, next up to talk to Professor Chomsky is Steve in San Francisco. Steve, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having the program. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Professor Chomsky, um, first of all, about the fact that a large number of quote-unquote leftists or liberals like Norman Solomon in the Bay Area, Howard Zinn, nationally supported Obama, hoping that he would make things better or he would allow some openings. Uh, That has clearly failed that he's carrying out the corporate agenda. I think you agree with that. But also, where you stand in relationship to a political development in the United States, since there is a big political vacuum in this country, uh, no real large political opposition to the Democrats and Republicans. There's peace and freedom in California, which is the largest socialist electoral party. But the fact that there isn't a political alternative to the major capitalist parties in this country presents a, a real political quandary two people in this country who look to Obama or another replacement of Obama as a representative, and I wonder where you stand perspective-wise in regard to that Mm -hmm. crisis, because uh, particularly in relationship to international relations, there was hope that Obama would do something different around the role of Israel and support for Israel and and many other issues, and basically he's carried out the uh, corporate and military agenda internationally.
2: Thanks, Steve. Well, just to clarify, I'm not certain what Norman Solomon Howard's views were, but I suspect their mind were pretty similar. Uh, not really support for Obama, but uh, opposition to the alternative. So my own view, just don't want to put words in their mouth, uh, was that if you're in a swing state, you should vote against McCain and Palin. And the only way to do that is to vote for Obama. I don't happen to be in a swing state, so I'm free to do what I want. Uh, and it's not a pro Obama position and I had no expectations for him. I wrote about it before the election and I'm not disillusioned by what happened, but because the alternative was worse, uh I think and still think. Uh and sometimes you just have to make you're in a position where you have to make unfortunate decisions between bad and worse, you know. Uh you don't have the option not to choose. Uh, you do have the option. It may not be a wise choice to take that option. But you're quite right. We we have basically a one-party system. It's uh, the business party. It has two factions called Democrats and Republicans. Uh, they're somewhat different. And in fact, you know, they overlap. I mean, there have been times, for example, when I, in my own state, supported uh, Republican representatives. Like during the Vietnam War, it turned out that the uh, representatives in the House, the ones who were most anti-war, happened to be Republicans. Okay, so you know I had them over to the House to talk to neighbors and supported them and so on. Uh, not because I agreed to them on other things, but I agreed to them on this. Those are the choices we have to make when we have essentially a one-party state. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, alternatives have to be developed. And that's a hard job. Uh, it doesn't happen in a day. We can, it can be done. It's been done in the past. Or just take a look at Bolivia, which I mentioned. I mean, uh, under conditions of far greater repression and suffering and penury than we could even dream of, they did create a political alternative and, in fact, took over the state. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to say that we can't do what poor uh, indigenous uh, Bolivian peasants can do, but it doesn't happen in a day. It takes constant, dedicated effort. But, uh, locally, you know everything from school boards up to representatives. Does
0: it? Does it have to do with the fact that that those those people in Bolivia, in a sense, had less to lose and less investment in in the system that they were trying to change?
2: Oh, they have a lot to lose. For example, in the two thousand water wars, what they had to lose was uh, the ability to drink water. That's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. They have plenty to lose, and f- in fact, facing of, of violent military repression is not a joke. we're extremely privileged uh and that gives us lots of opportunities uh if we don't make use of them okay that's our. Uh, let's say take the critique of the media again, okay, which you mentioned before that's fair. We should make sense to criticize the media but it's it's entirely possible to develop alternative media i mean even on even television uh, so for example the uh Cable television Act it was passed by Congress i think nineteen seventy four or so it uh one of its provisions provided in communities all over the country uh community uh, uh cable systems you know they 're not c b s but uh by the standards of most of the world they 're pretty remarkable uh The left could use them, but it 's not doing it occasionally they 're doing it, but well, most places you go, including right where I am, Cambridge. It's just not being used. Uh, The the energy that's going into criticizing the media is appropriate, but it could be used to develop alternative media using facilities that are actually available to us. Uh, And there's much more beyond that. So there are a lot that we can do, but it doesn't happen by itself. Uh, Here, uh, I'm sure that Howard Zinn and Norman Solomon would agree that you just have to do it yourself if you want anything to happen.
0: Let's, uh, let's, let's move on to Peter in San Francisco and hear what he has to say. Peter, welcome to the program.
2: Yes,
4: thank you very much for this program. And uh, thank you, uh, Noam Chomsky, for continuing your efforts to enlighten all of us in the world. Um, I had a, a, a comment on my own feelings about uh, the why we're in the situation we are, um, there just doesn't seem to be any logic in, in uh, being a citizen of this country and realizing that over the years a, a large segment of the public seemed to be, in quote, good people, but we continue to uh, allow our government to do what it is doing. And we talk about problems restoring democracy in other countries when, in fact, perhaps the one and only problem that we need to address following all that we've been through over this past century, is to restore our own democracy in this country. That with the lobbyists and the campaign funding the way it is today, I don't really feel that any of us in this country are being represented. And that really uh, I'm almost giving up in my efforts to feel that education is the solution because it's not that our public needs uh, so much needs an education as it is that we need to have people represent us and and it's very discouraging to realize they do not anymore.
2: Uh, I I agree with uh, every phrase except the last two words anymore. I mean the country was set up in the first place, you, know, you take a look at the Ma- Madisonian framework. It was set up uh in in the constitution was established so as to ensure that power would be in the hands of the wealth of the nation, Madison's phrase. Uh, that's why major power was Uh, uh, assigned to the Senate in the constitutional system, which was to consist of the wealth of the nation, the group of people less susceptible to popular influence. And there were reasons for that, and uh, they've continued through the years, and there's been a struggle for 200 years, uh, 250 years, to try to uh, determine to what extent the population will actually participate in the democratic process, uh, not just in the political process, but also in the economic system. I mean, why should uh, you know? There's no law of economics that says that corporations should be run uh, in the interest of uh, stockholders. And stockholders doesn't mean somebody who happens to have a uh, you know one stock in some mutual fund, but it, it's highly concentrated, very concentrated sector of Narrow privilege and power. No law of economics says that that's the way corporations should be run. And not say in the interests of the 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 workforce who should take it over and manage it, or the community in which it lives.
0: When it when it comes to corporate power and democracy, I mean you're very critical of what corporate power, concentrated corporate power, has done to the democratic process in the United States. You say, look to Bolivia. As as, a, as as an alternative, a way that people could organize a different kind of society and a different kind of politics, are there examples in the in the developed world? You know, sure. That, that you... Take the United States.
2: We're a much freer society than they were. I mean, take again the Madisonian compact. It wasn't for a free society. It was a f- for a society of property owning white males.
0: No, I, I'm asking for an example of something that's closer to a free society. Well,
2: take us. We've become a more free society over the years. Mm, okay. In fact, just in the last, you know, like in my lifetime, last uh, say forty years, it's become a much more civilized society, and we know why. It's thanks to the activism of the nineteen sixties and its aftermath, which brought a good part of the public into the uh, uh, first of all into the political arena, but also into the uh, arena of enjoying the rights that they ought to have, Uh, women's rights, for example, minority rights, uh, rights of future generations, which is about what the environmental movement's about, uh, solidarity movements with the third world, the global justice movement. All of these are new things, and they've civilized the country, so much freer, more civilized country than it was in the 1960s. Of course, that elicited a backlash. It always does very harsh backlash, and we're right in the middle of that struggle right now, which is one that's gone on in one form or another throughout the history of the country. In fact, back into colonial days, uh, and uh, similarly in other countries. So it's not that there's kind of like a model somewhere that we have to discover and follow. We have to create our own models uh, using the capacities, resources that we have, uh, standing on the shoulders of people who've, done a lot of the work for us and left the legacy that we can build on uh, and and those are the constant tasks of uh, serious citizenship
0: not just here or everywhere We're talking to Noam Chomsky on uh, Your Call. Uh, He's going to be in the Bay Area uh, a couple of times in the next few days. On Saturday night at 7.30, he'll be speaking at the Middle East Children's Alliance Benefit for the Children of Gaza at the Paramount Theater in downtown Oakland. And on Tuesday evening, he's going to be at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco speaking about philosophies of language and politics. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left with Professor Chomsky. If you'd like to join the conversation, we've been hearing some really great questions from listeners uh, at feedback at yourcallradio.org or eight six six seven nine eight talk eight six six seven nine eight talk And let's go straight to Susan in Berkeley. Welcome, Susan.
3: Hi, uh, thank you very much. I, my question has to do with the situation with the Iranian people at the, to- at the present time who live under a brutal theocracy. And when they start speaking out, they are brutalized in the most horrific way. I, I want to know what should the international community and the United States government do uh, in order
2: to help the Iranian people, if anything at all? Do they have a role? Thank you very much uh, That same question arises even more strongly uh, in countries not very far from Iran. so take this so, so take this saudi people I mean by uh, saudi standards Saudi Arabia uh, by their standards, Iran's a free country. Uh, women, for example, have much more greater rights in Iran than in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's no repression. Of mass popular movements in Saudi Arabia because they can't get off the ground. Uh, they can't even begin. Uh, same is true in um, Egypt, brutal dictatorship. Uh, 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 when Obama gave a speech in Cairo, he was asked by journals what he thought about the Egyptian dictatorship, and he said something like, Well, I don't like to call folks names, and they're pretty constructive. Yeah, We can do things to support, uh, and do do a lot of things, to support harsh and brutal repression. In the case of Iran, I think the best thing we can do is essentially what the dissidents are asking us to do. So if you listen to uh, Shirin Abadi, uh, Nakwar Ganji, and others, uh, what they're saying is basically, yes, we should lend support to dissidents, but we should stand back and not support the government. And one of the ways is not support the hardliners. And one of the ways we support the hardliners is by taking a harsh line ourselves. So when we threaten Iran with attack, or carry or organize uh, subversive activities inside Iran, that strengthens the hand of the hardliners. You don't take it from me; you can take it from the most outspoken dissidents. And for obvious reasons, like if you know after nine eleven that strengthened the hands of the hardliners in the United States. Uh, people, you know, maybe they don't like the government, but they rally under the umbrella of power and uh, join together to fend off attack. Uh, so, yes, we can help them, but mainly by standing back. There's no substantive way in which we can intervene to support them. Uh, we can in countries that rely on air. Support and that are our allies, like uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia among numerous others,
0: and when you are talking about the international role in Iran, I mean the other big issue this week, well certainly for for years now has been the question of the Iranian uh, nuclear program right now they 're talking in Geneva with uh, six major powers who are trying to to curb it threatening sanctions. Just two quick questions: do you think Iran is seeking nuclear weapons, and when it comes to efforts to curb it? I mean, is this just hypocrisy of the people, you know, the countries that already have the nuclear weapons, or is there, you know, is there an interest of all of us in making sure more countries don't have don't have nukes? Yeah, there's an interest in
2: no sane person wants Iran or anyone else to have nuclear weapons, but but it's it's very interesting the way the question, you know, you should always ask why is the question posed this way, same as in earlier things that arose. Because the way the question is posed usually begs a lot of serious questions. And this is a very dramatic case. So yes, the attention of not the world, but the West, the attention of the West is focused on uh, Iranian uh, right to uranium enrichment. Okay, And does it lead to something else? The world disagrees with us on this. Uh, In fact, even the American population does. Uh, Most of the world uh, strongly supports Iran's right to enrich uranium, along with every other signer of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. In fact, our, uh, you know, our favorite, uh, the favorite U.S. government figure in uh, South America, uh, Brazil's President Lula, took a very strong stand supporting Iran's right to uh, enrich uranium. The uh, majority of Americans believe that too. So when we talk about the world here, we're talking about Washington and uh, whoever happens to agree with it uh... no, you're right that the focus now is on whether iran is planning to develop nuclear weapons uh... many analysts think it's not entirely impossible even uh... and even understandable i mean when you threaten a country with destruction it's likely to try to develop a deterrent sure. uh... when we invaded iraq that was a signal to iran we're going to attack anybody who can't defend themselves and we don't like you and we've been trying to subvert you for decades so you better try to find a way to defend yourselves. so maybe they responded by developing nuclear weapons Who knows Uh, maybe not but that's really not the issue so take what's not being reported go for it while the focus is on whether or not Iran is developing nuclear weapons uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency relevant body uh, passed a resolution uh calling upon Israel, which has probably a couple hundred nuclear weapons, uh calling upon it to join the non proliferation treaty, which it's refused to do, and to open its facilities to inspection. Uh the US and the European powers tried to block the resolution,
1: and when they failed
2: to block it, voted against it, but it passed. And of course Israel rejected it. I don't think that's even been reported in the United States. Uh, there was a UN resolution uh, which was interpreted here mistakenly as directed against Iran, supposedly obama's triumph, three days after that resolution uh India announced publicly that they now have the- they've been developing they're expanding their nuclear weapons capacity uh that they now have the capacity to produce uh nuclear weapons uh which are comparable to the most powerful in the u s and Russian arsenals I don't think that was reported in the United States at least i didn't see it. Uh, it's not hidden, you know, you find on the front page of the British press. Uh, but uh, uh, now, Israel, there are three countries that have never signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, Israel, India, and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And in each case, we have and continue to participate in their development of nuclear weapons. Uh, that's what the headlines ought to be. Sounds like not whether or not Iran may be Iran, which is under threat of attack, may or may be developing nuclear weapons. I hope they're not. And in fact, uh, the Iranian government, Ahmadinejad, uh, just made a reasonable suggestion a day or two ago, namely that they, uh, uh, they and others uh, obtain uh, enriched uranium from third-party sources.
1: Well
0: reasonable suggestion Noam Chomsky uh, we've got a couple more callers I want to get on before we finish the hour with you it's been good to have you and I appreciate I think that would be a great subject for us to talk about proliferation beyond Iran and the role of the United States certainly something that's not talked about nearly enough uh, Donald in Mill Valley welcome to your call
5: oh hi I'm very very glad to talk to Noam Chomsky would love this stuff um, just a comment uh, Matt you said that uh, Mr. Chomsky seems to be an anarchist, but I, I disagree with that. I'd say that historically he seems to be a moralist and tremendously moral viewpoint on world affairs. You, but you,
0: you could be both.
5: Yes. Anyway, um, the the one thing that I would like to hear Mr. Chomsky comment on is the role of money in all this. I mean, I mean it. He's provided a tremendous uh, like I come from the Vietnam era in Australia and I was appalled with what the Australians and the Americans were doing in Vietnam and and really that's our cultural background but in this day and age everybody talks about money we're in the internet age some of those things that uh, was re- referred to about nuclear weapons I read on, on my iPhone in bed so We've got a different media situation where I can have access to The Guardian or to the British papers very easily in the United States. So I think the current moral question is about money. And I'd love to hear uh, Noam Chomsky's uh, viewpoints and in some detail, you know, a piece with uh, tremendous, you know, depth dealing with the the questions of morality of money and how it goes around the world. I mean, it strikes me the reason why Iran is uh, regarded in the crosshairs of Europe is simply because it hasn't joined the banking system.
0: Donald, I want to get a response from Professor Chomsky before we have to close the program. Yeah. Uh, well,
2: you asked for a response in depth, and I don't know if I can, if there were enough time, but I certainly can't in a short period of time. I mean, there are problems. I-, I don't think that we can address seriously the question of whether money should be used as a form of exchange. Um, there's some form of exchange is needed, and we don't want to have barter, so there's going to be some sort of currency involved. But there are very critical questions about money. Uh, I-, I don't think it's true that that Iran is in the crosshairs because it didn't join the banking system. I mean, it didn't join the banking system because it's in the crosshairs. Uh, The United States has been trying to. The United States and Britain have been torturing Iran without any let-up for over half a century. Uh, I won't run through the whole history, but it's literally true. And they're in the crosshairs right now because they're trying to be independent. The same reason Cuba is, the same reason others are. Powerful states will not tolerate independence in the domain of their power. Of course, they like independence among uh, in the domain of their enemies. Uh, that's a pretty general rule of history, and it not only applies to the United States, it's explicit in internal documents, no. going back to the Second World War. Now, as far as money is concerned, there is a major question about the role of financial institutions. Uh, in, in the 1970s, uh, there began a new process a big change in the international economy uh, sometimes called neoliberalism uh, one aspect of it was financialization of the economy so you go back to 1970 uh financial institutions represented maybe 3% of gross domestic product and now it's probably 30% uh meanwhile the productive capacity has been transferred abroad uh, the owners and manufacturers still make plenty of money like Dell computers perfectly happy to have them produced in China, uh, but the uh, working people of the world have been placed into competition with one another, which has the obvious effect of lowering wages. That's what the world trade... N- Organization
0: Noam Chomsky, is I hate to interrupt, Noam. and especially because when I see all the emails and phone calls that we were not able to get in uh, during this hour, I-, I hope we can have you back at some point. The, the, clearly the conversation with you, people are, are really interested in digging into so many things. And I will uh, direct folks uh, to YourCallRadio.org where we have some of Noam Chomsky's recent writings, including uh, a piece about uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, noted linguist and leading critic of U.S. foreign policy, will be in the Bay Area uh, in the next few days. On Saturday night at 7.30 uh, he's going to be at the Paramount Theater in Oakland as part of a Middle East Children's Alliance and a benefit for the children of Gaza. And on Tuesday night he's going to at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. You can find all the information at our website. And Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for your time today. Really glad to be with you. Take care. Bye. On the next Your Call, it's our Friday Media Roundtable. This week, the Senate Finance Committee voted down plans for a public option in health care. The White House announced that Guantanamo may not close by January. And there's an intense focus on the Iranian nuclear program. We'll be joined by Andreas Zuma, who covers the U.N. for the German daily Dataga Zeitung, McClatchy's David Lightman, and ProPublica's Daphna Linzer. Where did you see the best reporting this week, and where did journalists fall short? It's your call with Sandeep Roy and you. Support for Your Call comes from the listeners of KALW and the friends of KALW. To listen to past shows, visit yourcallradio.org. You can also find links there to the Your Call blog and podcast. Malihay Razazan is the show's producer. Matt Martin is the executive producer. Pete Mysick is our web editor. Phil Hartman is our chief engineer. And Debbie Kennedy is the studio engineer. Your Call's theme music was composed and performed by Live Human. Your Call is produced by KALW in San Francisco. Special thanks to our partners at KUSP in Santa Cruz and you can always email us at feedback at yourcallradio.org.
2: Join me, Alan Farley, for
1: more explorations in music. This season, Is There Anything More Downright Irksome Than Child Prodigies? A Tribute to Felix Mendelssohn. They are a brutal reminder of our own mediocrity and inadequacy.
2: Explorations in Music, starting Monday, October 5th at 9 p.m. Right here on KALW.
0: This is 91.7 KALW San Francisco, your local public radio station.
5: Listener-supported community broadcast service online at KALW.